For decades, education reformers have complained that districts and school leaders rarely use high quality evidence to inform decisions about policy and practice. Meanwhile, education leaders complain that the kinds of evidence researchers produce don't address their needs. Could both sides be right? And if so, how can we bridge this divide? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guests today are Nora Gordon and Carrie Conaway. Nora is an associate professor at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown, and Carrie Conway is senior lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, where back when offices were a thing, I was lucky to have her as a neighbor. Together, Nora and Carrie are the authors of the new book, Common Sense Evidence, The Education Leader's Guide to Using Data in Research, which is out this week from Harvard Education Press. You can find a blog post drawn from the book on the journal's website at educationnext.org. Nora, Carrie, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Thanks, Thanks for, so having, for us. having us. So we're recording this on Tuesday, August 25th, which I believe is the book's official release date. So I have to start out by saying congratulations. It must be a good feeling to see this come out, uh, even if your book tour may need to be delayed. Thanks, Marty. It's really fun to be here with you on this day since uh, you're our launch party. <laughs> well, in a nutshell, what this book tries to do is, is lay out a new vision for evidence use in education and then give leaders the skills they need to follow through on that vision. What led you two to write it? What were the problems that you wanted to address? So the way you let in with this whole research practice policy divide was something that, um, you know, Carrie and I had both really grappled with for years in our different capacities. And uh, the book is a guide for education leaders. I'm not an education leader. I'm a researcher and I'm a professor. And uh, for a long time, this was really kind of simmering for me through my teaching. Uh, I teach the master's in public policy program in the McCourt School at Georgetown. And you know, in my different education policy electives, I would always have some sort of research project that I'm trying to map to a really policy or practice relevant problem. And so then the students would be you know, coming up with their problem and they would come up with great problems because they had great backgrounds and they were in the real world coming up with real problems. And then they would need to go to the research and come up with some sort of literature review. And if I had, as I used to, various requirements about how many of their sources need to be in peer reviewed journals, then they'd be coming back to me saying, I guess I need to change my topic. And that was very frustrating for them and obviously, you know, for me too. And it just had me thinking a lot about this research practice divide. And if you're a leader in real life and this is not an academic exercise, you don't get to choose your problem. So I had been thinking about that for a long time. And then um, the Every Student Succeeds Act and its evidence requirements and how some of them were getting interpreted um, really made the issue seem more urgent to me. But I knew for a project like this, I needed the perspective of someone who had really been working in the real world on this. So um, I was very happy that Carrie wanted to work on this project too. And I, I was super thrilled to join in because I had my background was working for over a decade as the research director at the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Uh, so I was working very closely with some exceptionally smart, capable colleagues who just wanted to use data effectively as part of how they were making policy decisions, 
but not all of them had a lot of exposure to research in their training. So they didn't always know how to do that well. And so I spent a whole lot of time figuring out how to do that kind of on the fly. And when Nora approached me, I thought, oh, this is a great opportunity for me to help share what I've learned with a broader audience um, than I was able to do in the agency. Part of your message in the book is that efforts to promote evidence-based policymaking have been too narrow, focusing almost exclusively on the question of whether a discrete program or intervention has been shown to have a causal effect on student outcomes. That's certainly the focus of the evidence-based policymaking provisions of the Every Student Succeeds Act that, Nora, you just mentioned. What are the downsides of that approach? Well, before I get to them, which I definitely will, and I love to talk about those downsides, I just want to kind of be fair and say, if you're trying to legislate evidence use, you're trying to have a formal policy where you're going to put things into bins and say, this counts, this doesn't count, um, you, you can't really be much more nuanced than things like the Every Student Succeeds Act were in their language. Um, but if you're trying to get people to do what works, you, you miss the point that, first of all, the research base doesn't speak to many of the real decisions that educators face. And even if it does, it may speak to them in a different context than the ones that are relevant to the educators. And so, I mean, I think we have a really extreme example of that right now with COVID and thinking of all these education leaders who are trying to make decisions about you know, different strategies that they might implement when none of it's really ever been done this way. And so you might have evidence on a curriculum that was effective in a classroom, but how is it going to work on Zoom and how do you interpret that research base? So if that approach of looking at specific programs and interventions, figuring out which ones have been shown in a convincing way to have a causal effect on student outcomes, if that's too narrow, what are the other opportunities to use evidence in the decision-making process that you want to call leaders' attention to? It seems like part of the concern is that one of the downsides of the Every Student Succeeds Act approach is that it may focus education leaders' attention only on that one question. They do their best to comply with its requirements, and then they say, we're done using evidence. Uh, what are the other opportunities that you really want to unearth for them? I think, Marty, there's a ton of opportunities if you take a broader definition of evidence, which is sort of what your, your question implies. Uh, if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary definition of evidence, it is the available body of information indicating whether an op opinion or proposition is true or valid. Nowhere in there does it say that it must come from a randomized controlled trial. It is about just what information is available that shows whether something is true. And so when I think back to what I, the role I had at the state, if I had only answered questions about what works, I would have probably only answered about 5 or 10% of the questions my colleagues actually needed answered to do their work well. What works is important, but we need to understand why something works, how it works, for whom it works. We really need to understand the context in the enabling conditions under which it works because, I mean, districts that participate in research are almost by definition unusual. And so what is it about that district that may or may not have contributed to its success rather than just the intervention of whether it worked or not? We need to understand things like stakeholder perception. That matters a lot in a political environment. 
Who cares if it works if your stakeholders don't support it? We need to know what it costs. There's a million other questions you, where research evidence can be helpful if you just broaden your, your view a little bit. And so most of the book is practical advice on how education leaders can take advantage of those opportunities to draw on various forms of evidence. And you all start out by talking about turning a problem of practice into a research question. Why is that important and what's the key to doing it well? I think the reason why that's important is because there's a lot of answers out there that are looking for a question. And you wanna make sure you're finding an answer to your question. So if you just take a moment to think about the question you really have, before you get started, it's very helpful. Um, and then you wanna be structuring a question that can be answered objectively. And you might answer this yourself using your own data. And we take a very broad view of, the, of data in the book, um, as long as it's systematically collected. Or it could be answered with research, which I would just, again, we take a pretty broad view here. We're not saying it has to be peer reviewed. Um, we're not saying it has to be a randomized controlled trial, really just thinking this is data analysis someone else already did. Um, but either way, what you want to think about is how are you going to ask these questions in a way that answers the question, how do I know this is true? Um, and forces you to kind of confront your priors and all of these kind of cognitive biases that we might have where we think we don't need to even check this because we know it's true. Um, and so in the book, we talk about three different categories of questions that we think are probably the most useful types of questions you might ask when you're turning your problem into a question. One is a question of diagnosis. For whom and when is the problem worst? and looking there for root causes within the education system that we might be able to do something to solve. And then we talk about implementation and impact questions. And there we really are encouraging people to answer those types of questions in real time. So looking at as implementation unfolds, is it happening the way that you thought it would? Where are things going well that you might in one place that you could replicate someplace else? Where are things not going so well and why? And then trying to evaluate at least short-term impacts as you go so that you can adjust course. The goal is not to conduct the perfect research study. The goal is to improve the education of the students that you serve. And the only way to do that is to track your progress as you're going. And once you have a question, you, you do advise leaders to start by consulting the research literature and you try to give them the tools to do so. Now, the research literature is not gonna tell them in real time whether the program they're implementing is working as intended but it can be a point of departure as, as leaders start to, to use evidence. Um, a piece of your advice that I enjoyed in this section is that, quote, you don't need to read the entire study. Why not? And what should they do instead? Well, I think the reason why you don't need to read the entire study is because if you have done the first part of coming up with your question, you'll see that probably the study isn't actually about your question. There might be information in the study that speaks to your question, but there's going to be a lot that they're writing up as their findings that's actually not about your question at all. And then when you see a headline of you know, somebody translating this research, you'll get to a very general statement often like summer school doesn't work, or this is a made up example, um, 
but it, they're not saying, well, what is summer school? How many weeks? Who taught it? What was the group size? What was the curriculum? They're not saying, what would it mean to work? Did, did that affect uh, completion of the next grade on time? Did it affect achievement? How are you judging it? And so if you've defined your question really specifically going into it, then it helps you pull out the relevant pieces of any study and you'll see if they're there or if they're not there and it will help you understand the practical significance without getting kind of um, distracted along the way by things about statistical significance or effect size that might not even matter for your question. And so really focusing very specifically on what are the variables that they're analyzing, what are the magnitudes of the relationships do you think that they're estimating a causal relationship or might it be a correlation, which still may be informative to you? You know, without thinking about magnitudes, you can't really start to think about costs and benefits. Um, and of course, without understanding exactly what the thing is, you can't understand if you can implement it. So those are the kinds of things that you wanna be looking for in the study to pull out, but they're often not the main thrust of the study because a lot of the study will be written in this very academic perspective where it's in a decades long conversation within some disciplinary thing that you don't actually care about. Yeah, and the other thing I would add on this point is just, probably no single study gives you the sense of the broader sense of the literature on a topic. And so if you're just trying to get a sense of what do we already know from research about X, Y, or Z, you want to get a sense of what, what we know generally, not individual studies. So you might look for things like systematic literature reviews and meta-analyses as a go-to place rather than the individual studies underneath them. So the more specific you make your research question, and being specific is the advice that you give, it seems like the less likely it will be that you'll find exactly what you're looking for in the published literature. And so consistent with that, a uh, major emphasis of the book is that often the evidence decision makers need won't be found in the research literature, that they'll need to uh, learn from their own data. Is that really feasible? Yes, Marty, it is feasible. That's what I did for 13 years at the state. Um, but you don't have to have a research director to do this. Like, it, I mean, I have some training in research, so I have some skills I could bring to bear. But really, all this takes is asking yourself, how do we know? How do we know whether this is happening the way we want? How do we know whether it's having the impact we want? How do we know we're focused on the right problem? Asking those questions and bringing data to bear for it is what it takes to learn from your own data. And really any educator can do that. And your book is addressed to the demand side of evidence use to consumers of education research. And we have a lot of education leaders who listen to this podcast, but we also have a lot of listeners who are researchers. Do you have any advice for them? An important thing to do as a researcher is to sort of take the other perspective. And so rather thinking, I just finished this paper and I want to push this out. Um, that's, you know, an answer that you're sending out in search of a question, um, but really thinking about how you're going to find questions that leaders care about. And so you can't do this in a vacuum. You have to kind of show up in whatever way that means now, virtually or in real life, um, get to know people. I actually have found Twitter really useful for this, for kind of getting to know communities. Um, if you think, well, I'm 
you know, an economics professor, how am I supposed to know school board members or how am I supposed to hear what reading teachers think? You can find these communities on Twitter and kind of see what they're talking about. It's really useful. Um, so you, you can do that. You can, you know, write and speak publicly about things, um, about those issues. And I think something that often holds academics up on this uh, which is a really good way of forging those relationships because then people know you're out there, but people feel like, oh, well, I, I don't really have anything relevant to say based on this paper I just wrote without realizing, well, actually, I know a whole lot of stuff that I didn't discover or I just think of as background or a fact, and it's not worth me talking about, but actually it is useful for other people to hear that stuff. To some extent, the first part of your response there suggested that researchers need to give up control of the agenda, which is something that a lot of researchers really value, the ability to study the questions that they think are important, regardless of whether people in the field are wanting to know the answer. I suppose that's fine for researchers to do, as long as they then don't complain that nobody is using their research to inform decisions. Yeah. Well, and I would say, Marty, that that like that type of what I would characterize as more basic research absolutely has an impact. It's just a little harder to see the the sort of nitty gritty of exactly how that happens. It sort of influences a set of ideas that maybe somewhere down the line change a, the way a policy or practice goes out. But that isn't the only pathway to impact. You can do, for one thing, translational work. So writing general audience, writing for Ednext, writing books, those types of things help get ideas out of the academy. Um, but I think going back to what Nora said, the, nothing substitutes for human relationships in terms of getting research used. And I personally don't think anyone goes into education policy research wanting their work not to matter for the conversation. And so it's just a matter of putting in the time to connect with the people who can benefit and also can help you shape your agenda, back to Nora's point. To close our conversation, I'd like to read my favorite passage from the book and then ask each of you to elaborate on it for listeners however you like. At the end of the introduction, you write, while evidence is critical for improving education outcomes and increasing equity in education systems, it is and should be only one of many considerations in your decisions. In fact, that's exactly how our democratic system is designed. It's a feature, not a bug of our educational system that leaders consider stakeholder perceptions, political concerns, financial constraints, and capacity as they do their work. The approach in this book acknowledges this reality so that you can use evidence in real life. Carrie, as the author who brought the most real world experience to the project, do you wanna go first? Sure, I'm happy to. And I wrote that sentence, so <laughs> excellent choice. I'm glad you liked it because it, it really, speaks to a, a fundamental change that I made in my own practice as a researcher. When I came to the state agency, I thought my job was to figure out what worked. And the longer I was there, the more I realized that so many other things go into the policy making process. And that is literally how the system is designed. That is what is supposed to happen. I think researchers sometimes think that we, sh that we should live in a technocracy where everything is decided by some sort of evidence-based um, practice. That's not our system. It is literally politicians' jobs to weigh the available information under uncertainty and make a decision on behalf of everyone. Data and research should be part of that equation. I'd love to see it play a bigger part of the equation, but it should never be the only factor. That's not what a democracy is. 
And Nora, what would you add? I completely agree with what Carrie said. And I think a real challenge here is when people are not explicit about their values. And so then we wind up having this kind of muddied uh, argument where two sides are disagreeing and it's not clear, are they disagreeing on the underlying facts or are they disagreeing on what you should do with those facts because they disagree on what matters. And so that's something that I try to emphasize a lot in my teaching. Um, and I think in a lot of um, what people read about education research, there does get you know, sort of opinion or commentary mixed in with reporting or research. And so I think anyone who's reading this kind of work needs to always bring that lens to it and think what is you know, the fact, what is this objective question that this piece of research answered, and then think, okay, what do I do with that information based on my values, the values of my community or my organization? My guests today have been Nora Gordon and Carrie Conway, authors of Common Sense Evidence, The Education Leader's Guide to Using Data and Research. Nora, Carrie, congratulations again on the book's release, and thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks so much, Marty. Thank you, Marty. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.